0: And perhaps I can start the talk with um, what for me could be a very simple way of summarizing Buddhism, Buddhist practice, in four words. And then we'll make it more complicated. So, the summary of it all thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of hours and hours and hours of Dharma talks for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is, don't make it worse. (laughs) No, whatever you're doing, don't make it worse. And then, if you want to have it a little more complicated, because that's you know too simplistic, and you can add, make it better. Whatever situation you're in, whatever is happening to you, don't make it worse, and if you can, make it better. And I think one of the things that happens as we practice and practice and come on retreats is that I think in the essence, that's the same practice, the same instructions all along, but we begin to understand better and better what it means to make things worse and what it means to make things better. We begin understanding that in a deeper and deeper way inside of us. And uh, we become, and over time, we becomes clear that we are the custodian of our own hearts, that there's no one else who is the custodian of our inner life, the deepest places in our hearts, their deep inner life. We might want other people to be the custodian. We might expect people to be the custodian. We might forfeit. Our responsibility in favor of someone else to have the power, the authority, the magic to somehow be able to make everything right inside. But as we practice and do this work and start seeing what goes on inside of us and start seeing more in intimacy and deeper and deeper of how the mind works and thoughts and reactions and responses and inspirations and how all things works, it becomes clearer and clearer that uh, there's no one out there who's really responsible for the depth of our inner well-being. And to not make it worse means really, you know, don't make it worse in your heart. That can mean other things as well, but in terms of practice, make it better. And don't make it worse. Uh, I think uh, it's a great place to discover how we do that on retreat, unfortunately. My first retreats uh, was a lot about discovering that, discovering how I reacted, how I got all worked up around physical pain, and all the things, all the beliefs I had around what Pain was about, and what it meant, and what it meant for me, and what a tremendous embarrassment it was that I had physical pain, and I wished I, I didn't want anyone else to know because, you know, I sur- surely I was the only one in pain, and the only one who was an embarrassment to Buddhism, and uh, I was, you know, a failure, and you know, and and uh, and and one of the really great ways in which. I made things worse was to have self-pity and uh, and it took me a while to catch on that having self-pity just made it worse. I also noticed that uh, if I was angry at my pain, I made it worse. I noticed that if I try to engineer myself out of the pain in some kind of great meditative concentration states, it usually made it worse. I noticed that if I tried to go up into fantasy that um, it kind of made it better (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it was relief of a certain kind and I was distracted from it but then over time I learned That these uh, excursions into fantasy, as kind of as pleasant as they kind of were sometimes, um, were kind of deadening. They didn't really kind of connect me and they kind of put me in a kind of a one-dimensional world or something or a flat world or it was almost like uh, candy or maybe like a drug or something that uh, by the time it was over, I'd feel worse. I I didn't feel more alive, I didn't feel more connected, I didn't feel any wiser because of it. And I learned slowly that I had some choice over how I responded to the pain I had. I learned not to... uh, and I learned this thing about not having self-pity not because I was wise, not because I kind of, you know, had great wisdom and insight and knew exactly that. I shouldn't have self-pity. I saw what it was and, and I could, you know, just I see you and I know better and I'll just let go of it. Uh, I, I, the, my, my, the real handle I got on self-pity was um, I was doing Zen practice and you weren't allowed to move in meditation. So it was a lot of pain. And I noticed that um, it was really, I mean, like a lot of pain. I mean, you know, (laughs) and you weren't supposed to move. It was actually, uh, uh, some of you know, Tungario. They had this rite of passage where you have to sit and not move for something like three hours, three and a half hours at a time. And, uh, you know, three, four times a day, you know, for seven days or something. It was five to ten days. It was un- unknown how long. It depended how well you sat. So if you sat really well, it was five days. If you didn't sit very well, it was ten days. But if you didn't sit, usually people, you didn't sit well because it hurt so much. <laughs> so you'd move. So anyway, it was a rite of passage. We don't do that here at IRC. But it was great for me. Because what I learned was in this intensity of the pain, when I had self-pity, I made it worse. And I could just barely manage if I just didn't do the self-pity thing. So it was more like, it wasn't any wisdom involved. It was a desperate act of survival. (laughs) I couldn't afford to have the self-pity. And I could feel how the mo- little, the teeny little muscles around my knees would contract whenever I had self-pity and make it worse. But if I didn't have the self-pity, then I could, it would release it a little bit and I could get... So that was, you know, you know that was kind of like uh, the rough way of learning these lessons. There are better ways of learning it, or there's other ways of learning that than that. And uh, what I'm trying to convey to you is that uh, we sit here and the challenges that come up on retreat are actually quite important. I went to one of my Zen teachers after a while and said, I I'm learning that these challenges are useful and sh- should I give myself challenges? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, Just, but when they come, then face them then, you know, pay attention and learn from them. And um, so the challenges are actually important because there are opportunities for us to learn about what we're doing in the inside, how we react, how we, what we leave, our sense of self and relationship to it, uh, how we relate to even to other people because, I know for me, some of these unhealthy ways I reacted and made things worse had things that had to do with how I wanted to be seen by other people or not seen by other people. And, and so it kind of tied me up in knots sometimes sitting there meditating. And, um, and um, I remember sitting there being miserable and um, we had this uh, other rite of passage. So there was ritual, the wonderful, these wonderful rituals in Zen where um, there was optional sitting that was required <laughs> and um, and uh, there was, especially in Japan, you had to do this too, but uh, it was kind of a Zen thing, it goes back probably centuries, the optional required sittings. And, um, and so you, it's, they, late at night, you're supposed to sit, you know, like the last sitting, you're supposed to sit and meditate into, you know, because you're serious and dedicated, you, you have to do this optionally required sitting. And, and um, and you and, um uh, but you're not allowed to leave, the there's no belt in the sitting. So you just sit there, um, but you're not allowed to leave into the people who are more senior than you leave. So when I was in Japan, I was the most junior. And so like, so I would have these thoughts since it was sitting there and you know, go on and on, it was late at night. Also in Japan, it was outdoors in the winter with the Siberian wind coming down on bald heads it was quite a trip knees burning and head cold and, and um and so uh I'd wait for these people to go to bed so I could go to bed and um and uh, I would have these thoughts like um uh, they're not really sitting the, the people are still left they're not sitting you know they don't know what they're doing they're sitting they're not sitting there but I didn't have enough sense to look at myself and say, "Gil, you're not sitting either." <laughs> <laughs> if you're sitting there, spending your whole time spinning, you know, criticizing them for, you know, they're just showing off, you know, sitting up late, and, and I was sitting there trying to be straight. Wow. And um, it wasn't completely terrible because you know, th- because once we got down to the last five of us who were junior. Uh, you know, then um, we had these really long, kind of long sleeves. So what we would, uh, then just the most, we would collapse against the wall and take the long sleeves and wrap them around our head. <laughs> so as they go warm and then, and then, uh, and then we start chatting <laughs> until, until uh, they thought it was, um, you know, okay to go, <laughs> go to, you know, safe to go to sleep. So, I mean, that was a little dis- little uh, distraction, I guess, tangential. But the idea being, you know, that uh, we start learning and seeing what goes on in our minds. And, um, and that's where a lot of wisdom comes, including beginning to understand what is really better for us. Uh, what is really, uh, what's really good for the heart? What's really a, a higher quality of inner life that we can support and promote? And I think that over the years of practice, my understanding of uh, what is really beautiful and, and uh, beneficial inside, what's really beneficial, has improved and clarified over time. From all the practice I've done, all the mindfulness I've done, it really takes a while to really understand, to, to not only understand, but to feel and sense and touch into what is really beneficial. And it was very, very. What it's come to is something very different than what I thought when I was starting practice. I started when I was twenty, and um, you know, and uh, certainly there were times where I thought it was mostly about pleasure, and uh, but pleasure is only you know skin deep, they say, and that's not about pleasure. Uh, And there were times I thought it was about status, you know. Oddly enough, you know, but anyway, I thought it was about status and. And uh, that's how I'd be happy. And that's where it was all at, what people thought about me, wanting everyone to like me. There were times that I thought it was about um, uh, 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 meditative success. That if I could just get into these deep states of concentration, then it'll, you know, I'll just kind of sail off into the horizon and be happy ever after. And, um, and after I did kind of experience some of these meditative states that can happen, um, they have their value. But I learned that's not really the highest quality of, I- of inner life. And so over time, this becomes clearer and clearer. And so this very simple teaching, um, don't make it worse, make it better, uh, it starts having more and more value as you have a deeper and deeper sense of what's possible and what's really going on inside. And, um, <clears throat> and then one of the things that uh, can arise, I think, I think of it as a natural arising, is um, to have a certain love for oneself, for this inner life that we have, the heart, and to care for it and take responsibility for it, tend it um, out of love out of metta and karuna, compassion, that, um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it hurts to hurt. And of course you don't want this beautiful heart, this beautiful inner life that is there, at least as a potential. Of course you don't want it to hurt so much. Of course it'd be nice to her to be happy and free and experience what's really worthwhile, what's really beneficial. And to do that not out of greed or not out of egotism or self-centeredness or out of fear, but to come to a place where we do it out of uh, kindness, love, is also a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful kind of uh, reciprocity perhaps, because that love is one of the beautiful parts of the inner heart. So as we discover what's beautiful in there, what's, what's worthwhile, what's really beneficial for us, we discover that there's something about, a, uh, I like the word tenderness of the heart, love, compassion, uh, goodwill, caring, that is part of that good heart and part of that what's better, what we can work towards better. So then it becomes self-reinforcing because with that love that's part of that good heart, if we act on that, then it. <clears throat> It strengthens it or supports it and as we act on it, it brings forth more of what's best for us. And, um, and I've learned not to, uh, to, over time, I've learned not to confuse the quality of the inner heart with all kinds of other more, um, certainly external situations I'm in, but uh, you know, the, the day-to-day or the immediacy of how individual events impact me uh, so you know, that, that can impact me in all kinds of ways, but uh, they tend to be a little bit more closer to the surface. And um, and uh, so there's a kind of a deeper wellspring of knowing some place in there that can be the wellspring of how to respond to the world and how to be in the world. So if the situation I'm in is uncomfortable, um, maybe even stressful a little bit, you um, that that's not really where I invest my time or invest my where I put in important. Uh, I'll try to. You know, this is this is just what's happening now, and I don't have to get caught up in it. Or I don't have to be make a drama out of it or make a big story out of it, because this is not really where the best movements are. So let's not make it worse. I'm in a very stressful work environment, very stressful family environment. And uh, people are challenged in all kinds of ways. And maybe the best I could do is, let's not make it worse. And then I would say that's pretty significant, don't make it worse. So remember that. But then also to know that there is making it better. Certainly you can make it better for everyone else if you can. But to know how to make it better for yourself. To know how to tend and care in stressful situation. To know that you have an inner life, to know you have a good heart, and to know it so well that you can kind of touch into it and come back to it and have that support you. And so then it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be wonderful. Everything doesn't have to be perfect or ideal. Um, but rather the heart is able then to hold it, to meet it with some courage, with some confidence, with some inspiration as a refuge of what is, what is difficult as well. And knowing the quality of the heart, quality of how the heart responds, is really where the best is, where the, how we improve things. So to have, to have a heart, to know this heart, the Dharma heart or the inner heart, is one of the things we slowly, bit by bit, over time, learn. Especially if you practice mindfulness, if you're paying attention. And the hallmark of the central thing we're doing is simply noticing what's happening now. And, just, and, and one way to make it worse is to really kind of <laughs> have other agendas besides just the simplicity of knowing what's happening now. Just now. Okay let's look and let's be with this. Let's be with this. If you're trying to get to the 16th Samadhi by six o'clock uh, through your simple noticing, then you've made it more complicated than it needs to be. And it maybe it's actually like making it worse. And I have, you know, I have scars. <laughs> I have lots of scars too. I, if I could show you, psychic scars from the ways in which I try to push and get into special states of concentration and override my all kinds of things. And it doesn't have to be so complicated. Just settle back and notice what's going on. So this um, Don't make it worse, make it better is uh, you know, kind of a little summary of the four right, four right efforts and uh, that Andrea talked about yesterday. And uh, to review them, they are um, uh, um, well, I'll say I'll say it this way because the wording of it, most people go what when they hear the the traditional Buddhist wording of them. So, well, but uh, to make it a little more complicated, then, um, if you're not making it worse, don't. <laughs> if you are making it worse, stop. If you're not making it better, make it better. If you are making it better, keep doing it. So how the traditional wording for the first one is, which is more the topic of today, is um, um, uh, uh, um, generate the desire to avoid having unwholesome or unskillful states of mind which have not yet arisen to arise. So if they haven't ri- arisen yet, the unskillful, the unhelpful states of mind, m- have the desire and make the effort for them not to arise. And one of the things that I find fascinating about the way the Buddha talks about it, uh, he makes this very strong statement, generate desire so that the unarisen, unskillful states don't arise. Generate desire. And uh there's so many kinds of desire. Uh, but sometimes Buddhism kind of gives the impression that you are not supposed to have any desire. That does, you know, does, you know, uh, the cause of suffering is desire. But in fact, there's a certain kinds of desire which cause suffering. But certain desires are really healthy to have. Certain desires are part of making things better. The desire to not make it worse is a much better desire than the desire to make it worse. <laughs> And so, if you have to choose between the two, please choose the first. Don't make you know desire to not make it worse. But I think that uh, the uh, it's the I kind of think that as we get to sense of this inner quality, this inner heart, it's the desire of the heart to want to be free. It's a desire of the heart to make things better, and it's a beautiful and noble desire. It's a powerful sense of purpose for our lives to live in a way that the best of who we are, the best of our hearts can shine and sing, that our hearts can feel at home in itself, that our hearts can have profound peace and well-being. It's a beautiful desire to have the agitations and the fears and the distresses and the uh, shames and the angers and the lusts that kind of grip and tighten the heart, to have them stop hurting us. Desire to stop having the self-harm going on. It's a profound thing. And to say, you know, don't have any desires and just let those continue, uh, I think it's uh, very sad. So the Buddha says, generate desire. and. Um, and so to have a clear sense of purpose, I think, helps in this practice. To have a clear sense, yes, this pr- the path of mindfulness, of showing up for ourselves and meeting and seeing what's here, uh, it's a valuable and purposeful and desirous thing to do. And to have that clear intentionality, almost like a ritual, can be a very nice antidote to all the more, maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, desires that are operating with uh, free abandon in our mind. Most distractive thoughts, you wander off in thought, if you analyze it, you probably see that those thoughts represent some desire. So if I'm thinking about, you know, ideal retreat menus, it, I have a desire for Tasty food, perhaps, and and I spend I can spend hours, you know, in these dist- uh, distractive kind of byways and highways of the mind, uh, because that desire f- for that distraction or those thoughts, that concern, somehow is given precedence, is given free reign. If you, Buddha talks. The Buddha said, to generate desire. Can you have a can you generate a kind of clarity of purpose? I'm here to do something very important. I'm here to really show up and be present for this moment. And being really present for the moment here is more, impre- more important than planning retreat menus of, you know, and how many cookies there should be. Just here. Here here, just here. That is important so that we can start seeing, so we can find our way through this and find how to improve on things. Now, one of the things we discover is that we have to be pretty wise about how we hold our desires. Because desires, you can get burned by even healthy desires. We can be of expectation, We could have demands that we fulfill our desires. We can have uh, disappointment because we have a certain idea that by two o'clock it should be be fulfilled. We can have ideas of how how it's supposed to proceed once we have a desire and and it's supposed to be quick or supposed to unfold a certain way or all that. And so the art of it is how do we not make it worse? How do we make it better in how we hold our desires. And that's, you know, something for you all to discover for each for yourself. But one of the things I, d- I learned is that um, when I sit down to meditate, uh, I, I can, it can sometimes be like a little ritual. I sit down and I make it clear, I'm here to be present. I'm here to touch into the, uh, the depth of my heart. I'm here to really clarify how to be free of suffering. I'm here to, um, to really um, become free. I'm here to become, or I'm here to be compassionate with myself. And uh, different sittings, different days, it might be a different intentionality or desire that goes into it. But to do it like a, I'm here, this is what I'm here to do. And sometimes when I've done this, I also do with my posture. I'll take a posture and kind of, as I say it to myself, I'll kind of kind of take a stance, kind of my kind of like physically, kind of like sit up a little bit straighter and kind of, I'm here to do this. And then once I've done that, I try not to think about it too much again. It's not like, you know, I'm trying to, you know. I'm not trying to, like a cat at the mouse door, you know, it's kind of like, am I there yet? <laughs> am I there yet? Has it come out yet? Have I succeeded yet? It's more like that intentionality is there then. It kind of clarifies or or reminds me or set, <clears throat> sets somehow the mind on a course. And I'm much more likely, not 100%, but I'm more likely then to not drift off into these more superficial desires that are expressed through a lot of this wandering thoughts that we have sometimes. So that's one way that I, I've done um, uh, this idea of um, to generate desire so that that which the unhealthy things which have not yet arisen don't arise. I have certainly sat down to meditate sometimes and, and not really been so committed to really sit and be present and um, gotten in trouble because my mind had a free rein. I wandered off and before I knew it, um, I, you know, I was minding my own business, things were good. And then I remembered some conversation I had 10 years ago. And then I remembered, well, what the person, what really, what they probably meant. I didn't realize it then, but 10 years later, I realized it and now I'm furious. And, <laughs> and, um, and then off I'm going, you know, and you now things are worse. And now I'm kind of swimming in my, my, my anger. So, uh, so one way to prevent the unhealthy arising of these inner states is to have some clarity and inspiration and refuge in a sense of purpose that's valuable for you, connected to the Dharma. And to hold that sense of purpose in a light way, in an undemanding way, but in a strong way in a committed way, this is what's important. And um, to be at the retreat center and give yourself over to that sense of purpose, I'm here to do this. I'm here to show up and discover and find out what's going on in a deeper way. I'm not here to uh, drink all the free tea that's available. (laughs) You know, I'm here to really, you know, be present. And then the other thing that the Buddha says when he talks about these four right efforts, um, uh, I'll I'll read you in a moment what he actually says. But um, again, to make it simple, uh, he doesn't say this, but he he does elsewhere. He says, don't be lazy. (laughs) Don't be lazy, he says. So here, here, this is a translation, um, so for the, the first right effort, Um Bikibodhi translates the word I'm using as desire, chanda, he translated it as zeal, it's with the, you know, just that's kind of like, that's, that's a strong word. Here a person awakens zeal for the non arising of unarisen, unskillful states. So you, uh, he occasionally uses the words "awakens zeal," "generates desire," and that person makes effort, uh, arouses energy, strives, and endeavors. That's, a, that's a, I mean, I, you know sometimes when I look at it, just reading that I get exhausted. <laughs> But uh, uh, one of the things that we learn slowly over practice and I think a huge way of, of maybe the whole history of a person's practice in Buddhism could be like the bio, your, your autobiography of practice. Uh, could be done uh, describing what you learned about how to make effort. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, different times, different kinds of effort are needed. We learn all these ways in which effort is not useful to make. And, um, and you, everyone has to learn this for themselves. And so oh, that doesn't work. That was too much striving, I, got to, I was straining there, I was pushing, I, my, you know, my eyes got all tense and I, my body got tense because I really was pushing and trying so hard with so much expectation. And then it can swing to the other side. And I had to learn at some point in my practice um, uh, to address my complacency at some point, I got really complacent in practice. I would sit a lot, meditate a lot, but it was got to be relatively comfortable to sit, and I kind of just coasted along, with the comfort and the ease that I had, and and half the time it, w- it was because then in, in that comfort and ease, I fell asleep, and um, and so you know just kind of cruised along, and I had to learn not to be complacent, not you know, it was kind of not just cruise along that way. I had to kind of awaken a certain kind of a little bit more dedication or sense of purpose or engagement, but how to make effort that feels more like effortless or how to be persistent and keep going without straining. How to do it in a way that feels very light and open. So one of the great, um, I, think, I think, paradoxes somehow is um, it's possible to make tremendous effort at staying relaxed. What do you think of that? You know, moment to moment, continuous, really stay right there, really pay careful attention, but to stay relaxed. So as soon as you get tense, (laughs) try and stay relaxed, that doesn't work, right? But it's possible to really stay, stay really, just relax, be there, be there, be there, be there. And um, for those of you who've practiced for a long time, what I'm about to say now might be relevant. people who are new, maybe it's something it'll come once you get to understand the terrain of effort and energy <clears throat> um, that um, some at some point it doesn't make a lot of sense to use a lot of willpower to uh, make effort and um and any kind of contracting or tightening or straining just doesn't work or doesn't make any sense and so um a wonderful kind of way of work with expression that somehow seems to uh, at least work for me is um, um, like if I, I'm going to okay, I t- tell myself, you know, "Okay, now it's time to, you know, I'd like to now stay with my breathing. Okay, I'm getting getting more focused and present, and okay, this is a time, this is a good time to really stay connected to my breathing. So if I try to do this, okay, I'm going to do this and get concentrated, I won't." <laughs> you know, I, I'll get kind of, I start straining or pushing or something, then it's kind of the willpower kicks in. But what I do instead is um, I imagine I'm going to make the effort to stay with the breathing. And this, when I imagine I'm going to do it, that's just enough. Then there's no mental tightness or st- pushing or straining. It's just enough to kind of like point and that mind points in the direction then. It has a very light feeling and light touch. Because, you know, there's no... there's no... just like it's... imagining to me is like... it's like trying to touch a hologram. You can't quite touch a hologram, right? It's like put your hand in it and it's nothing there. So I can't quite touch the effort of imagining, but it's enough to... it's just enough to stay there. To stay there, stay there, and that seems to work very well for me, to kind of let it practice develop and come along. And so, making effort, learning how to make effort, so we can stay on track, learning how to make effort, so that we can be wise about what we should do with ourselves. So, part of this uh, caring for ourselves and not having unarisen unhealthy states arise is to have a clear sense of what you don't want to see happen. So if you find yourself that uh, every time you go by past the coat rack downstairs by the door, you're admiring every coat there and you spend the next half an hour daydreaming about how you're going to sh- go shopping for a particular coat because that was like the ideal coat. And the next time you go by, it's another coat and you're spent, you know, wondering how you can get onto Amazon because you probably should get it before the end of the retreat. And, and every time you go by, you know, you're thinking about coats and coats and you want coats and you start dreaming about coats and, you know, you sit down to meditate and you have coat thoughts, the whole meditation. After a while, you said, this is not useful. This is not helpful. So I think uh, given how powerful my coat thing is, I'm going to avoid the front door where all the coats are. I'm going to go out the back door of the dining room where there's no coats hanging if I want to go outside. I'm going to avoid certain things because it's not healthy for me to have those arise. So that can be a very wise thing, to avoid certain things. So the idea in retreat of keeping your eyes down and not uh, looking around too much and not making eye contact with people uh, is not to be unfriendly but it's to um, not stir up the mind with all the kind of things that can happen in our social interactions and then spend the next half an hour kind of spinning around and you know having thoughts and why did that person avoid my eye contact with me? And what did I do wrong? And why do they let people into the retreat who are so unfriendly and, you know, and the mind spins out and seeing how the mind spins out, after a while, you know, I don't think I don't need to have the mind spin out so much. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll stay, I'll keep my eyes down, I'll stay close, I'll try to avoid the things. I had a lot of unhealthy states of mind arise on many retreats after lunch, going to sit, a lot of self-criticism, a lot of blame, a lot of... Well, despair Despair might be too strong of a word, but not probably not close to something like that, uh, arising because I ate too much lunch. And I would sit down and my belly was so distended and so full and I had trouble breathing and it was just like so uncomfortable and it said, And so it would take a few hours before I felt I can get back into the meditation because of how uncomfortable I felt. So I had to learn that it wasn't healthy to eat so much. So all those negative uh, thoughts that I had, they, you know, I could avoid them by just being more careful how much I ate. And then it was easier to be present and to watch what's going on. And then for this retreat, we're also connecting these four right efforts with the Brahma Viharas. And this particular one seems to work well with metta, with loving kindness. And I think that having a goodwill, basic kindness for oneself and for others, is a way to protect ourselves from having unarisen, unskillful states arise that so many of the unhealthy states of minds that arise, arise in a strong way or persistent way because something feels uncomfortable inside, something feels off in us. That there's something, some ways in which we are alienated from ourselves, some ways in which we're being critical or feeling some, some, we're, we're hurting in some way. And, um, and in that hurt, in that discomfort, in that sense of d- disharmony we can feel. It's very easy to kind of, for that to stimulate unhealthy states of mind of all kinds. And so loving kindness or kindness for people who can have access to it is a way of beginning to rectify that, to meet ourselves and hold ourselves with care, with kindness, with goodwill, with friendliness. So that uh, there's a, a balm or medicine of goodness that's in the picture, in the equation so that the ways that we hurt, the ways that we're aversive, the ways that we're afraid, don't have the upper hand. And that's another way of keeping certain states of mind from arising, is to, to offer yourself a lot of kindness, a lot of goodwill. It's a protection. Scholars uh, say that uh, back 1,000, 2,000 years before the Buddha, the um, what metta meant, Maitri in Sanskrit, uh, is um, original meaning of the word was not uh, friendliness or loving kindness, but it was um, it meant alliance. And the tribes would make alliances with each other, and uh, and then because they made alliances, they eventually become friends. And then uh, as the ancient Vedic literature developed, this uh, sense of alliance, you know, was done for protection, so they protect each other and not be at war with each other. And then it was extended to um, creatures in the wild, snakes and things like that. And uh, not to exactly to have an alliance with them, but to uh, uh, be protected from them. So they would generate this metta uh, as a form of protection. So there's something about this kindness, friendliness, goodwill, that has very powerful protective, uh, uh, it's very powerful protective force. And In terms of the working of our inner heart, um, kindness is a protective force from the unskillful states to get the upper hand or even to arise. So in terms of uh, not making it worse but make it better, um, a dosage of uh, friendliness and kindness and self-respect and, and self-care is really, really wonderful. And, when, and as we keep practicing and developing this practice, it'll become clearer and clearer that that's really appropriate. There's no one who's not worthy of their own kindness, no one who's not worthy of self-love and self-respect. There might be certain, you know, certain peculiarities that you have, certain oddities here and there that maybe shouldn't get too much respect. But uh, you don't have to wear those as a coat, that this, this is who I am. I'm the, I'm a bad person now. You can just call it, oh, that's peculiar. <laughs> you know, no matter, you know, that's peculiar. You're filled with rage. You're ready to kill someone. Well, that's peculiar. <laughs> You're filled with lust and for all kinds. Well, that's peculiar. You're, you're treating yourself in terrible ways. I'm a terrible person. You kind of step back and look at it and say, well, that's peculiar. And then try and kind of kind of put it in its place. You know, so it's not kind of like, you're not using it to define yourself. And then offer yourself kindness or goodwill. Or, or if that's too difficult to do, or even if it's easy to do, I find it so wonderful to, um, and almost like as a as a prelude to doing any kind of Brahma-Vihara practice, is to um, f- uh, feel tenderness inside. I don't know if tenderness is love, but to feel like a place, there's a place, you know, softness, tenderness, it's a place, it kind of feels vulnerable a little bit, but I, I, I love this tenderness, tender place. And when I feel that, then it's a lot easier. To have goodwill, or to be caring, or supportive to what's here. So, uh, as a way of protecting ourselves, so that the that which has not arisen doesn't arise, um, the protective influence of metta is very powerful. Some of you might find that it's helpful to start each sitting with a little bit of loving kindness. Uh, Either do the formal practice if you know how to do it or you have a way of doing it or do it very informally. Sometimes it's actually more effective to find your own very personal way of having kind thoughts about yourself or considering, kind of considering how is it that you can hold yourself tenderly, kindly, with support, with love. The idea that you're the custodian of your own heart, or let's say it this way, the idea that I'm the custodian of my own heart has made a big difference in my capacity to have self love and self care. And, um, and so, you know, if it's really up to me, then, and I'm the custodian of this, then uh, I don't want to hurt it. I don't want to be mean. I, don't want, to, I want to really foster and support it and, and uh, promote it and enhance, you know, the good that's there. And, uh, and that ge- then I generate much more kindness and support for myself. Occasionally, um, when I felt a need for it, um, I've uh, talked to myself out loud. Don't do it in the meditation hall. But uh, sometimes uh, talking kind thoughts or friendly thoughts to myself out loud, uh, there's something, I don't know what it is for me, but there's like it's a different part of my mind or my heart is being related to or is speaking, and to hear myself say kind words and friendly words to myself, and have the friendly kind of out loud, it's sometimes a little easier to come out of my mouth than if I'm trying to do it just in my own, in my own thoughts. And it's a way of kind of connecting to something, and and uh, and kind of ch- maybe change the inner environment. So it's a little bit easier to stay present, to notice what's here, to be with what's here. So it's a really uh, powerful thing you're doing to be on retreat. It's a very fortunate thing to be on retreat, and the first day is often a very difficult day, especially those of you who are new. If you're, uh, if you're more tired than usual, your body hurts more than usual, your the headache more than usual, or you're more discouraged than usual. Um, uh, this is very common on the first day and uh, the to hold it grace, gracefully, hold it kindly, try to learn how not to make it worse by being critical of that or believe it too strongly. See if you can make it better um, and take care of yourself and know that it'll all unfold. We're on a journey here and the journey will keep fo- unfolding and moving and and one of the ways to make it worse is to generalize as if this is going to be forever i'm going to be tired forever and this is the it just it just this is it's just what's happening now it's just now this is now this is what's happening now let's be present for it let's notice let's do the best we can with it And I appreciate very much that you're making your effort, and I, I was struck by how quiet it was in the hall today, and I, I felt in that quietness that you're making a wonderful effort and engaged nicely and and I appreciate I appreciate the chance to be with you and practicing here with you all. So thank you.